right, let's take our Bibles tonight and open them together to our study of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to begin our time by reading once again verses 3 through verse 6. Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Thus as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, as we begin our time tonight in Your Word, as we think about the rich truth that is here for us to contemplate and to find great joy in and to worship You for, May our hearts resonate with what is here. May may our lives be changed because of it. May we be enraptured in praise to You because of all that You have accomplished for those whom You have saved. And so we ask You to bless our time tonight, to use it in our lives for the greater advancement of the truth, of the gospel, and as well as our growth in Christlikeness. Thank you for this time, in Jesus' name, amen. You read this text and you realize right out of the gate that if you are a Christian, you have been blessed by God. You think about your life and you think about all of the things that maybe you enjoy in life, the things that you find to have great pleasure in and all that God has given you, and yet when you read this, there can be no more precious words in all of the Scriptures themselves than to hear and know that God has blessed you. To know that we are to shower God with praise because God has praised us with the gifts of His grace. Ephesians chapter 1 Verses 4 all the way down through verse 14 is a list for us of all of the blessings that God has given us in the heavenly places. And when we contemplate the fact that we have been blessed by God, as verse 3 clearly tells us we have as Christians, one of the things that happens to us as Christians is we can immediately begin to wonder about the when. The when of these blessings. When do we get these blessings? You find out down in verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance. When do we get these blessings? Notice that verse 3 tells us that these blessings are spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings. They're blessings that are spiritual and they are in the heavenlies or in the heavenly places. And so here we are on this earth. We're not in the heavenly places. We are not in heaven as of yet. And so we oftentimes ask the question, we wonder, how then do we get what God has blessed us with? Well, in verses 4 through 6, we begin to see how all of this takes place for us. Because we know that we cannot get them on our own. Or at least I hope we would understand that. I hope we know that the blessings that are promised here and the blessings that are given to us here are not ones we can achieve on our own. In other words, if they could be acquired through some kind of financial currency, if we could have some kind of monetary sum that would buy them, then these because they are in the heavenlies, it would take a heavenly currency. It would take something of a monetary currency in which heaven would accept. And even if it existed, 
We don't have any of that heavenly currency. I don't. If the blessings are to be given to us upon the death of the current owner of them, as would happen in any inheritance, then we are also in somewhat of a a quandary, if not in all-out trouble, because it tells us that God is to be blessed, which tells us that God is eternal. And since God is eternal, then God cannot die. And if God is the one to be blessed for the spiritual blessings that we have, and if it comes on the heels of God, and if they are to be given to us based upon the death of God, then we're in trouble. Since God is eternal, there's no execution of His blessings upon the death of Himself. It must be done some other way. So maybe... It is that God wants us to just ask for it. Maybe that's it. But we know that according to the Word of God, even according to that very, this very letter here that the Apostle Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus and the surrounding area, we cannot do that because we are spiritually dead in sin. Ephesians 2 clearly says that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so without some kind of outside intervention, it is impossible for us to even ask God for it, even if we were, by some slim chance, could muster up some kind of way in order to ask God for it. But since we are spiritually dead, we do not desire the things of the spiritual realm, and since these are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, then we are unable by ourselves to gain any access to them. So how then do we gain what we cannot personally gain? Well, the answer begins to be unfolded for us beginning in verse 4. And it starts with the words, just as, just as. That's one word in the original language, and it carries the idea of because. Because, in other words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, because, because. So Paul begins to say to us, God is to be praised, God is to be blessed. We are to shower God with blessing, with praise. Why? Because He has blessed us. And now in verse 4, we begin to see the nature of the blessing. In other words, this is the explanation of all of the spiritual blessings. And it tells us the what, the when, and the why of the spiritual blessing. The what, the when, and the why. Notice that it tells us that these spiritual blessings are not universal. They're not universal. In other words, they are exclusive to some people. They're exclusive to some people. They are exclusive to a remnant of people simply because God, through the wisdom and will of the Godhead, has determined to grant them to some. You say, how do do you know that? Because it says that He chose us. He chose us. God has determined to grant spiritual blessings to those whom He chose, and there's a purpose that it is God's grace that would be seen, that God's grace would be seen in the full light, that it could not be seen in any other way. God's grace would be seen, therefore the glory of God would be praised now and would be praised for all eternity. This is why we began a few weeks ago to say that the theme of this entire text is God Himself and the praise of God Himself. Paul wants us to understand, the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that if we are going to understand what God has given us, then we need to understand it is from Him and it is because of Him so that we might praise Him. So what we have before us 
here, beginning in verse 4, is a look back, a look back in time to a time when time was not. Here in Ephesians chapter 1, we are taken back before Genesis 1.1, where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We are here going farther back than even that moment in time. This is a look back into the mind and the heart of God as He set forth His plan to save a people for Himself to the praise of the glory of His grace. Some of us wonder from time to time, why in the world would God save a wretch like me? The only answer is the answer that the Bible gives us here three times in these verses. Three times in the verses between verse 4 and 14. In verse 6, God saved you to the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 11, we have what we have because it is, notice verse 12, sorry, to the praise of His glory. And verse 14, it says the same thing, to the praise of His glory. We have what we have. God did what He did, not because of us, but simply because of Him, because it was to the praise of His glory. God could not be praised in any other way that would highlight His grace in any brighter a way than to do it the way we find Him doing it right here. Paul begins in verse 4 by simply saying to us the what. He chose us in Him. Now those very words written here in our text cause a lot of people to squirm in their seats. Just that little phrase. He chose us in Him. You say, why? Why do people have such difficulty with that phrase? Because many a professing Christian believes, sadly, And wrongly, that if God elects only certain people to be saved, to be chosen, this is an exclusive reality, not a universal reality. If God chooses only some, and that only by His grace, then the reality of human choice is minimized, at least at best it's minimized, and at worst it is destroyed altogether. And they go on to say that if God is the one who elects, if God elects, then that removes any motivation for personal holy living. So if God elects, if if election is a reality according to God's economy when it comes to the saving of His people, if election takes place, then that removes the reality of human choice, that man's choice is gone and man is now a robot and only an instrument of, of somebody moving him. And certainly, like they said in Romans 9, as Paul brings out, how can you find fault if God just simply moves us where He wants? And that it removes any motivation, if that is true, if we are saved by election, or through God's choosing, and thereby in that we're saved in Christ, then there's no reason to have any kind of holy living. And whether one believes that or not, and the truth is that neither are true, neither of those realities are true when we talk about election, I hope that will become clear as we study through this passage tonight and over the next several weeks. The fact remains the same. The text says to us, blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ because He chose us in Him. 
whether we believe it or not, whether we'd like to acknowledge the reality of election or not, whether we have a difficult time understanding the doctrine of election or not, is irrelevant to the reality that the text says He chose us in Him. In other words, God is the one who elects. It is inescapable. You cannot escape that reality when you open the Bible. And it is within the blessing of His sovereign election that all of the other blessings that we find here in verses 4 through 14, it is within election that they all exist. That is simply to say that if there is not sovereign election, if there is not the reality of God's choice, that God chooses us in Him, if that is a non-existent reality, then there can be no spiritual blessings from God at all. And so for us to have any spiritual blessings from God, it all must begin with the sovereign choice that God makes of us. And notice also, we cannot leave it out. We must be in Him. We must be in Christ. He chose us in Christ. That is the only way for anyone to be in Christ is for God to put them there. To have any kind of salvation at all, to have any kind of place in which God accepts you at all, before Him you must have the righteousness of Christ, therefore you must be enveloped in Christ, and the only way to be in Christ is if God puts you there. So the reality is we are connected with these spiritual blessings because of what God the Father has done. Verses 4-6 through six clearly uncovers that for us. We have these blessings because of what God the Son has done. Verses 7-12. through 12. And we have these blessings because of what God the Spirit has done. Verses 13-14. and 14. So the entire Godhead, the Trinitarian Godhead, is at work in all of this so that we would be to the praise of His glory. God the Son is working to glorify the Father as much as the Father is working to glorify the Son, and God the Spirit is working to glorify the Father and the Son as much as God the Father and God the Son are working to glorify the Spirit. There is a unifying and and Trinitarian beauty in the relationship in which the Godhead expresses the reality of redemption so that we would be sucked into the vacuous love that is going on between the Godhead so that they would be glorified to the maximum. And we are just sucked into that vortex by the grace of God so that we could witness it and so that we could praise God for all eternity. And so, so when you come to this, we, we ask the question, how is it that a person, how is it that any of us are enjoying any of the blessings of God's grace? How is it that any of us are enjoying the blessings of God's grace? We cannot say that it is because we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If I asked tonight, why do you enjoy the blessings of God? Most of us would say, well, it's because I believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It is true. It is necessary. We must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ if we are to be saved, if we are to be part of the family of God. We must believe upon Jesus Christ. We cannot rightly say that we have gained these blessings, however, because we've believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be to deny the words of the Apostle Paul, what he is saying here. That does not answer the question asked, however. Why? Because that does not take us back far enough. To say that we have these blessings because we believed upon Jesus Christ only takes us back in the redemptive realities far, but not far enough. We have to go back even farther. Even though faith is necessary for salvation, even though we must believe upon Jesus Christ, the reality is we have these blessings come to us from farther back than our belief. 
He said, what I'm trying to help us understand, what I'm trying to get us to understand in our minds is that we cannot answer the question by starting at points that are lesser than the point that God tells us where we get these blessings. We cannot say that we have these blessings because somewhere in the in line of our life we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Doesn't take us far enough back. All of those things are truths that must take place, but they take place after that which came first. And so the Apostle Paul, in order for us to praise God as we ought to praise God about the salvation that we have, about all the blessings that we have in the spiritual place or in the heavenly places in Christ, he takes us back to eternity past. Paul takes us back to the, to the moment, to the time notice, he says, before the foundation of the world. We praise God because God has lavished upon us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God has chosen us. That's the what. That's the what God did. And He chose us before the foundation of the world. That's the when. That is so human crushing. That is so egocentric crushing. That crushes the very essence of man's will. That is such a staggering thought for us, beloved. God called us out in the person of His Son, and He did it before time was time. Is it any wonder that when we get to chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. How in the world could you ever get into this blessing equation that was God's will to do it when it was before you were ever even a nanosecond of being? You couldn't do it on your own. It's not as a result of works. You can't get there. Sometimes we try to argue, argue with people about the realities of why it's not of works, and the fact of the matter is it's not of works because God chose us. That's why it's not of works. Because God chose us before the foundation of the world. God called us in the person of His Son. God enveloped us in the reality of Jesus Christ and the redemptive plan that was set forth in the Godhead and the wisdom of the Godhead before He ever said, let there be light. Before He ever set in motion and created ex nihilo from nothing, anything that was made. He chose us before time was time. I think it was good that Chris asked us that question tonight about familiarity. Because we need to just sit for a moment and just let that rest on us tonight. That the only reason that you and I enjoy any spiritual blessing, the only reason that you and I are here tonight, the only reason that you and I have a desire to be here and open the Word of God together as the people of God is the only reason that you and I have any spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ is because of and only because God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That, beloved, is the doctrine of election. That is the doctrine of election. And there are many who object to it. You say, why? 
because the doctrine of election has nothing to do with them at all. What do you mean? Do you mean that it's because they're not of the elect? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the doctrine of election removes them from the process of religious salvation. They can't do it. They can't accomplish it. I don't want any of us to struggle with this as we're sitting here tonight. There are three three basic positions, if you will, that people take when it comes to the doctrine of election. It doesn't matter if you're religious. It doesn't matter if you're irreligious. People take one of these three positions. And their stand, depending on which they take, says a whole lot about their view of God and about their view of His Word. The first position is simply this, that election is just rejected altogether. Right? Some will say, uh, election, that's not in the Bible anywhere, and they'll just ignore passages like this and other passages that speak to these realities. In other words, it is the belief that not only is it not here in the Bible, but it's also, and even more so, the belief that no person is saved simply because of the sovereign purpose and plan of God. In other words, election has nothing to do with man coming to salvation. That's the idea. That's what they're saying. That election has nothing to do with someone coming to salvation. The way of salvation is through God providing a way. They may agree to that. Yes, God must provide a way. And the way is through Jesus Christ. Even some will say that's what the Bible says. You come through Jesus Christ but it also may be through some other means. Jesus Christ is just one way, but there's all kinds of ways. In fact, many of the false religions of our day will say, listen, there's many roads to heaven. There's many roads to heaven. In other words, it is by God's grace to provide a way, but men do not come to Him because He has elected only some to come. No. They come if they desire to come. And after all, all roads lead to heaven anyway. And so they just reject election altogether. So that's one view. The second view is that there may be election. They don't reject it outright. They don't say there is no election. They, they say there is Certainly, there may be election, but God's election is grounded in the reality of foreknowledge. And by foreknowledge, they mean that God looks down through time, time that has not happened yet, although it's time that He has created. They look down through time, and then God sees those humans who will choose Him, and therefore, prior to that reality, He chooses them. So His election is based upon their election. In other words, because God knows all things, they will acknowledge that God is a sovereign God. He knows all things. He knows what will happen in the future before it ever happens. That's how they think about foreknowledge, knowing before. And then some say that God elects some to salvation, and all the blessings that come with it are based on not on His sovereign choice, but rather on the basis of His choice of them because they have chosen Him. Of course, that sounds very reasonable. In a fallen heart, that even sounds logical. But that is not actually election. If it's defined that way, that's not what election is. It's actually a self-ordaining unto being chosen. That's what it really is. I self-ordain myself unto the reality of being chosen and therefore, my choice determines that God choose me. And furthermore, verse 5 says, notice that not only is election from God, that God chooses us, but also it says in verse 5, He predestined or predetermined that we would be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. 
So both are according to the kind intention of his will. That's verse 5 says. So not only are we chosen in Christ, but we are predestined to adoption as sons in Jesus Christ. And all of that was according to the kind intention of his will, not our will. So we are chosen by God before the foundation of the world, not because God saw us leaning toward him, having some kind of exercise in which in our future life, before we were ever created, God looked down the road and said, oh, that one will choose me, so I will choose him. That could never happen. Why? Because we're spiritually dead, as verse 1 in chapter 2 says. We're spiritually dead. We hate God. And so therefore, God had to choose us before He did anything, simply according to the kind intention of His will, which is the same reason why we are adopted. Now I need to to say this. The reason, you may not have, have really thought about this and contemplated this reality, particularly if you get into discussion with someone who tries to deny election. But the reason that some have difficulty embracing the doctrine of election, which is so clearly and so forcefully taught in the Scriptures, is not because election is so difficult to understand or even to grasp. It's not because they don't like election. Election is clearly taught. They may deny it, but they they don't like it, not because they don't like election. It is not difficult for anyone to hear and to know that God is sovereign over all things. The difficulty for mankind in his fallenness and his deadness and his human heart that has fallen because of sin, the difficult thing for him to embrace is that he himself is not sovereign. You say, what do you mean? Well, I mean this, that people actually don't have a problem with election. What many truly have a problem with is the doctrine of depravity. That's what they really have a problem with. They don't necessarily have a problem with verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1. What they have a problem with is verse 1 of chapter 2. They can read chapter 1 and go, oh, God elects. Okay, let me, let me morph that into the reality of foreknowledge whereby I choose God and God chooses me because I've chosen God. And yet when you get to chapter 2, they hate that because it says you're dead. Which implies you could never choose God. In fact, you would never choose God. So they don't necessarily hate Election, what they hate, is depravity. What they deny in varying degrees is how dead is dead. That's what they deny. They deny that dead means actually dead. You see, to believe that election does not exist, to believe that, that God just opens up avenues for all to come to Him is to believe that man is able. That man has some sense and ability to come to Him. And under the right circumstances, if everything is put in line or if the sales pitch is done just and right or, or if the, the circumstances and the, the moment and the music's right and the lights are right and whatever it is that's going on in the life of that person, if all of those things line up, then after all, they will come. That's a false notion. To believe that God looks out through time in the future and picks those who have chosen Him is a, a false notion. That's to believe that man is able to choose God. That's to believe that man is not dead. What they mean when they say that is man is just sick. He, he has a sickness with sin, and if he just gets the right inoculation, his sickness will go away. But he's not dead. He's not dead in sin. 
And so some may say that man is depraved in some kind of way, but what they mean by that is that man is only sick. And yet the Bible clearly says that man is dead. He's unable. He's unable. And so those who battle with the doctrine of election are actually battling with the doctrine of total depravity. They're not really battling with election at all. They're battling with a heart that doesn't want to believe that they're unable. And so Paul comes right out of the gate to these Ephesian believers and he says, listen, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You are to praise God. You need to praise God. You need to, 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 to wake up praising God. You need to walk in your life praising God. You need to praise God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How did He do that, Paul? He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Meaning, it had nothing to do with you. Your salvation was absolutely in the mind and heart of God before He ever said any word of creative power to create what we live on and who we are as people. God chose you before that. If that doesn't stagger your mind and cause your heart to praise and worship God, I wonder, I wonder if you're actually alive in Christ. And so Paul says it is God who chooses us. And it is God who chooses us before the foundation of the world. And thirdly, thirdly, He chooses us with a purpose. He chooses us with a purpose. Paul says in verse 4 that we would be holy and blameless before Him. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. We saw the what, God chose us. We saw the when, before the foundation of the world. This is the why. This is the why. Why did God choose us? Why? What God did, He chose us in Christ. When did God do it? He did it before the foundation of the world. Why? Why did God do it for us? Simply for this reason, so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And through that holy and blamelessness, we would be to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's the purpose of God in Christ. God didn't save us because of something He saw in us. If He saw something in us, there's no need for holiness and blamelessness. Only those who are right before God are blameless before God. God is the ultimate judge. God will hold everyone accountable while we are holy and blameless before Him. This is the purpose. In Christ, we are the people of God. He chose us so that we might, that He might undo what was done in the annals of time through our first parents, Adam and Eve. So that He might remove and rectify completely the effects of total depravity. That is simply to say that God chose us so that we might no longer be trapped in the bondage of sin brought on to us through the fall. God chose us so that we would be holy and blameless. God chose us to destroy the works of the devil. So that for all eternity we would be free. Free from the effects, free from the consequences of the most horrific event that ever has taken place in all of the creation of God. 
We know what it is. We were there in the loins of our first parents, that fateful moment when Adam and Eve rejected God willfully and believed the lie of the deceiver. Romans chapter 5 says we were there in Adam. And so God, before anything ever took place, chose us in Christ. In the new Adam, in the, in the Adam that was the after Adam, if you will. Christ, who is the one who was before Adam, who came after Adam. We died in Adam and we are made alive in Jesus Christ. God chose us, notice, so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. It's, it's as if Paul is describing the same thing from two different angles. He says holy and blameless. Holy means to be separate. To be set apart. That, that, that God set us apart unto blamelessness. One angle is the inward angle of holiness. We are, we are positionally holy before God in Christ, and therefore we live blamelessly. We are to externally uh, be blemish-free. That's the outward angle. So you almost have this dual angle going on, the inward angle of holiness and this outward angle of blamelessness. God chose us that we would be clean inwardly, and that inward cleansing would show outwardly. We are holy, separate, blameless. We might even say holiness is the positive side, blamelessness is the negative side. Not negative in the sense that it's a negative thing, but negative in the sense that it's outward. We are holy, we are positively holy, positionally holy, and that means that the negative pollution is, that was attached to us is no longer there. How did it come up? Where is that holiness? Where is that blamelessness? Notice, before Him. Before Him. No more important place to be found holy and blameless than to be before God holy and blameless. People go before the priests all the time. Oh, i got to confess my sins and if they can... Somehow they can get their sins expunged by doing some machination of prayers and all this other kind of stuff that the priest tells them to do, and it doesn't do anything before God. And yet Paul here says we are in Christ, and it's in Christ that we would be holy and blameless before God. We are in Christ. We've been chosen in Christ. We are before God. We are in His presence, in Christ. We have an advocate with the Father so that when we sin, God's wrath doesn't come upon us because we are enveloped in Christ. Christ is our advocate with the Father saying, no, 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 that's, that's one of you. That's one of you. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 6, Not only are we in Christ, but verse 5 says we were made alive together with Christ and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. To the praise of the glory of His grace. So this is another way of saying that we are continually in fellowship with God. Right now. As the children of God in Christ, we are in continual fellowship with God. So each and every time we sin, know who you're going with when you sin. It's a willful reality of taking God with us. Listen how the Apostle John puts it in 1 John chapter 1. Here's what he says in verses 1 to 5. Just listen to this. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
Now, he's not talking about the beginnings before beginning ever began. He's saying what was from the beginning when we we became conscious in this process of redemption and we we saw Jesus Christ. We, We heard Him. We saw Him. We looked at Him. We touched Him. Life was manifested. We have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which has which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, here's the purpose, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship, notice, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you so that our joy may be made complete. And this, he says, is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. What is Paul saying? What is the Apostle John saying? They're saying the same thing, telling us that God chose us to be holy and to live holy before Him. He is saying that the object and the purpose of our election unto Christ is that we might walk with God, that we might walk in light as He is in the light, that we might not walk in darkness. You say, really? Is that what Paul's getting at? Yeah. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. I mean, you can't, you can't really start chapter 5 without talking about chapter 4 because chapter 5 begins with therefore, which means everything that came before it is something we have to have in our minds. And you can't really go to chapter 4 until you deal with chapter 3 because chapter 4 starts with therefore. And so you can't really get to all of that until you get through chapter 3. And chapters 1 through 3 is all about what we have in Christ. And so that by the time you get to chapter 5, and this holiness and blameless is on our hearts and our minds, God says to us through the Apostle Paul, therefore, be imitators of God. Well, that's a tall order. Not for those who are holy and blameless. Be imitators of God. How? As beloved children. You're in Christ. You're adopted as sons. You're a child of God. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, let immorality or any impurity or greed not even be named among you as it's improper among the saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk, coarse jesting, which isn't fitting, but rather give thanks for You know this with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See, Paul's saying, listen, if your life's not reflecting the blamelessness that your holiness is provided through Christ and in Christ, then you have to ask yourself, do I am I even part of this? Is this really me? It's an absolute moronic notion to think that we can be Christians, that we can be part of this blessing and go on living however we want to live. We cannot do that. Why? Because God didn't choose us for that. He chose us so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. None of us would be holy and blameless were it not for being in Him. That's how Paul ends it. Right? That we would be, He chose us in Him and so that we might be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us in Christ and there was a purpose of Him choosing us in Christ and it all happened before the foundation of the world so that the purpose we would be separated unto Him and walk in righteousness before Him. Only because we are attached to Christ. Jesus Christ, as we will see, gave Himself as the holy and blameless One. And in Him we have been given His holiness. 
his blamelessness. Ephesians chapter or first, I mean, uh, Paul said to the Corinthian believers, right? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. So here Paul is talking about our position. We are in a position before God, holy, blameless, and yet our practice is to reflect those same things. Notice, well, we already went there to chapter 5. We are to imitate God. So we all know that living the Christian life is difficult because we have this sinful tendency in us. Sinful flesh. We have this temptation in the dead self to follow the dead things. Each and every one of us is far from the holy standard that we know is in Christ. But we are in Him before God. We are in Him before God. Therefore, we are secure in Him. That's why we can say we are secure in our salvation even though we sin. Because we're in Him. Right? We have the righteousness of Christ. We are secure as He is before the Father. You ever, you ever think about that? You are as secure in your salvation as Christ is before the Father. In other words, for you to lose your salvation, God must get rid of the Son and there no longer be a trinity. You are secure as that. And so we are waiting for the day of full redemption. And so because of being in Him, we are holy and blameless before God. Therefore, then we should live our lives now that reflect that holiness and blamelessness. When we look at these passages, when we look at just these first few verses, there is a whole lot there to praise God for, isn't there? I mean, we have much by way of spiritual blessing that we, we kind of just gloss over and don't think about. And none of it's because we deserved it. None of it's because we did anything to get it, but only because God chose to give it to us by the grace of Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ. The election need not be confusing, need not be even divisive. In fact, election is a great blessing. You say, how so? I'll tell you how. Because of election, no one can privately say, I did it on my own. Because of election, nobody can say, hey, I got here by myself. There are many who are critical of that doctrine why? Because they claim it's a gospel that is only for those who choose, and therefore they claim in their, in their prideful arrogance that they can get there when in fact it's, they cannot. That's why they really don't like it, simply because it removes their arrogance. Salvation is fully of God. He chose. In fact, in every doctrine that we'll see in these verses, these 11 verses, 4 through 14, in every doctrine, God is the agent, not man. God is the agent. He's the one acting. It is God who is doing it. And so because God is the one who is acting, it removes any boasting. If people could somehow get to heaven by what they do, no matter how small, then we have something to boast about. But if God does it all, then no one can boast. So the blessing of salvation have come and come only through God's election. If it doesn't come that way, then there's pride. And God's desire is to remove pride. God gives grace to the humble. That's the first reason election is a blessing, but election is a blessing also because election actually gives assurance of salvation. Election gives assurance of salvation. Suppose for a moment, just suppose that salvation were 
up to us. That you somehow in your life could choose to to go after God. And if that were the case, then salvation would come and go based upon whatever mood you were in that day. I feel like God today, so I'll go with God. Oh, I must be saved today. Well, today I just don't feel like it much, so I won't go to God. Or I have to run to to the little docket at church and, and speak to the man in the box so that today I can ensure that I am okay with God. One moment I'm saved, the next I'm not. Salvation were not of God. None of us would willingly choose to stay with God. And no one ever chooses to be adopted. Right? We are predestined, he predestined us to adoption. No one ever chooses to be adopted. We cannot place ourselves in another family. The adopted doesn't say to the family adopting them, hey, you must adopt me. It doesn't work like that. The family has to bring us in. That's why Paul says, God has adopted us. And therefore, once we're adopted, we are always part of the family. That's secure reality. Once God adopts, He keeps His children. That's the second reason election is a great doctrine. Third, election is a great doctrine because it's a motivation for holiness. It's actually a motivation to live holy and blameless. You say, why can you say that? Because that's the purpose of God electing us. God elected us so that we might be holy and blameless. Right? Not just positionally holy, but practically holy. Holy in practice. Holy in doing what we do. Those who say that it's just a license to sin. Oh, you're elect. Oh, okay, you're secure with God, so go on sinning because you can't get out of it. Or either not saved and therefore not elect. Or if they are elect, they're not saved yet if they say that. That is simply to say we must be growing in holiness. Why? Because that proves our holiness. Proves us to be holy. We grow in holiness in practice. Proves that we are holy in position. Fourth, election is a grace of God and is an actuality because election actually stimulates evangelism. I've heard it so often. Oh, if we believe the doctrine of election, that removes evangelism because after all, if God's going to just save all those whom he elected, then why do we evangelize anybody? They're going to get saved anyway. When in fact, election stimulates evangelism. You say, why? Because those who are saved understand that while God is the one who draws the elect to himself, God has also ordained the means through which they are drawn. And the means through which they are drawn is the preaching of the gospel. And so rather than as a person who is saved, rather than simply being quiet because God saves those whom he has chosen, rather than being quiet, we actually go out and preach the gospel to all men, knowing that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul would say in chapter 2, we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves? the gift of God. It was a gift for us by means of God's choice. That came about before any part of this created universe was ever spoken into existence. That, beloved, should cause us to live holy and blameless lives, praising God for what He has done for us. We have reason to praise God. There's no reason for us to wallow in the mire of pity. We ought to be just praising God for all that he has given us in Christ. And we, and we basically just untied the bow on the wrapping. Because we'll get into more of this as we move on. What a phenomenal text. Somebody asked me this morning, what's your favorite book? I said, well, they said, is it Luke or is it Ephesians? I said, well, they're both my favorite right now in many ways, but Ephesians is a whole lot more technical than Luke is, at least in my mind. And so delving into the nuances of this text is just fascinating to me. Let's 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonder of your grace, the wonder of how you accomplished all of this for us that did not deserve it, how you chose us in your wisdom and through your divine plan that we might be your children before anything ever existed. We were seen in your heart and mind in Christ. And you therefore carried that out in, in, in your creative power and through your redemption you carry that plan out. So we sit here this day as a testimony to that very reality. We are instruments of grace, undeserved in anything that we have, and yet we want to just simply praise you for it all. So thank you. Thank you for these things. Thank you for choosing us in Christ. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit to do what you have asked us to do, to imitate you, to live holy and blameless in Christ. So that others might know Christ so that you would be praised because your grace abounds. We thank you. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen.